A new uh, preaching series in Paul's, uh, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, First uh, Thessalonians. So I invite you to turn with me to First uh, Thessalonians chapter one. Um, if you don't have your Bible, you can turn to the blue pew Bible in front of you and you'll, pay, you'll find it on page one thousand one hundred sixty nine. First Thessalonians chapter one. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Well, I've had a rather uh, hectic time the last few weeks traveling to uh, West Virginia and San Diego and then to Chicago for some vacation and then the free church conference and then to officiate at a, uh, a wedding. Uh, but it's been good, been good to be back in Annandale for a full week and to be fully engaged in the life of the church once again. Uh, you know, there are some pastors who advise their younger colleagues never to stay away too long from their churches. Uh, I mean, you never know what the music director or what the youth pastor might come up with while you're gone. Uh, They tell uh, stories like the one about the pastor who went traveling to unknown destinations for close to a month. And upon his return, he was uh, rather flattered to hear that his church had formed a group to try to find him. (laughs) Then to his dismay, he discovered that, in fact, the group was a pastoral search committee and they were looking for anybody but him. Um, Or there's a situation told to me by a a pastor about his young, struggling church in Annapolis. He went away for two weeks and returned to find that the entire congregation had left him. Uh, That's a true story. And there's no question that such stories can foster a kind of uh, pastoral paranoia. Uh, Has my ministry really made any difference in the lives of these people? Uh, What's going to happen when I'm gone? Will the flock scatter when they sense that their pastoral shepherd is no longer watching? I liken it to the feeling that uh, parents get when they uh, drop their son or daughter off to college for the first time. How will they handle this newfound freedom? Will they remember all that I've tried to teach them? Will their faith survive in what can be a very hostile world? Many of us know that feeling quite well. And I assure you, 
Uh, I don't fear being away from this church. The Lord has blessed this church with some very able and dependable leadership. But I, I do know something of this pastoral paranoia at times when people leave us and move on. And I'm just as sure that this pastoral paranoia was very real to the Apostle Paul, particularly when it came to his feelings toward this church in Thessalonica. And for good reason. And we read in the book of Acts that on his second missionary journey, Paul had come to this prosperous capital city in what is now Greece. And he immediately began preaching the gospel in the synagogues with evident success. And we read in Acts chapter 17, verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded by Paul's preaching and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But within only a matter of a few weeks, Intense opposition arose from the synagogue. The Jewish leaders incited a riot in the city aimed at Paul and his fellow missionaries, accusing them of disruptive and seditious activity. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. It was a, a vicious and violent scene. And Paul and Silas had to sneak away at night quite suddenly. And Paul then went to the city of Berea. And even there, the Thessalonian opponents followed him. And again, he was forced to flee. You see, among the Jewish leaders, there was no love lost for this new sect called Christians who had a reputation of causing trouble all over the world. And under such circumstances, what, what chance did this fledging group of new converts in Thessalonica have without the Apostle Paul in their midst, leading and guiding them. I mean, how could they withstand the fierce persecution that had already begun to come upon them? I mean, they'd only been Christians for a matter of a few weeks. How could they hope to hold on to their new faith in such a hostile world? They were like infants left out in the cold. I call it paranoia, if you wish. But Paul is deeply concerned about this church. And we see that concern reflected in this letter to his Thessalonian brothers and sisters, probably written in about A.D. 51, only a few months after his sudden departure from them. Chapter 2, verse 17, he writes, But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Chapter 3, verse 1, So when we could stand it no longer... We thought it best to send Timothy to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. Chapter 3, verse 5. When I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. Who knows what might have happened to these people? They might have started compromising their, uh, the supremacy of Christ by offering sacrifices to Zeus alongside the worship of Jesus. They may have relaxed their new moral convictions by indulging in the sexual lusts that were commonplace in the Greek world. Maybe they had grown to resent Paul for leaving them the way he did, doubting the sincerity of his love, questioning the truth of his message. Or perhaps they just decided to give up the fight altogether, gone back to the more socially acceptable form of life of their pre-Christian days. What had become of them? Paul was anxious to know. 
But the result of his inquiry couldn't have been better. Chapter 3, verse 6. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. Now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. You see, Timothy's report had confirmed all that Paul had hoped was true about this church. They were standing firm in the Lord. It makes you think about what the Apostle John had said. I have no greater love. No, excuse me. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. It's true. Your children, whether biological or spiritual, your children can accomplish all sorts of things that can make you very proud. But there's no greater joy than to hear that your children are walking in the truth. And Paul had heard that his spiritual children in Thessalonica were walking in the truth. And this letter, which we'll be studying for the next couple of months here, is Paul's response to this good news. It's a letter of thanksgiving. It's a letter of praise and encouragement to this group of new Christians who were very dear to the apostle. They're his delight. And he even refers to them as as models, model believers in the two provinces of Greek, Macedonia and Achaia. And I think they can be models for us, too, as we ask, what is Christian discipleship supposed to look like? What does it mean to walk in the truth? What should we be striving for in our lives? And what should we want to see in our children? Children, both biological and spiritual. Well, that's what we should be looking for. As the, this morning, we consider the first chapter of this letter and take note of the Thessalonians as model believers. So what excited Paul's heart as he thought of these people? Well, I think three things stand out. First, their decisive conversion, their missionary zeal and their Christian character. And ultimately, you see, all of these point to God's gracious work in their lives. And that's why God thanks God. That's why Paul thanks God for these people, you see. And so I, I think as we consider this, let's uh, uh, look for ways that we can cause others to thank God for us as we move forward in the faith through our study of God's Word this morning. So turn with me again to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we ask, what kind of people were these Thessalonian Christians? What kind of experience had they had with the Lord? Well, I think we get some insight into these questions in the final two verses of our passage, verses 9 and 10. And Paul tells us that people from all over Greece were telling how these people had turned to God from idols... To serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is an account of the conversion of these people to Christ. And what a clear and decisive conversion it was. Notice, notice the three elements that are emphasized here. First, they turned. They turned from idols. 
This is the, the negative side of conversion, what we call repentance, turning from that which we formerly looked to as the objects of our worship, what we formerly considered uh, what was most worthy of our highest devotion, the focal point of our lives, our highest value. Our idols are those things that we think we cannot live without. Those things that we think we must have to be happy or successful or secure or simply to be fulfilled as a human being. Maybe it's a position of power or prestige in your work. Maybe it's money in the bank. Maybe it's the physical pleasures of, of things like sex or just recreation. Or maybe, maybe it's marriage and children. Any of these things will do. And these can be good things. But they can easily become idols. And the, in the pagan world of this uh, first century Greece, such idols were often given very concrete form. With each of these uh, human passions assigned a deity to which devotion was due. They would act out in the temple what we do in our hearts and lives, offering sacrifices to the God of power or the God of wealth or the God of sex or whatever it is. But these people, Paul declared, had said no to their former way of life. They had turned from idols as they recognized that these idols could not deliver what they promised. They were false gods that in the end only led to personal corruption and captivity. And so they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. In saying no to their false objects of worship, they said yes to the living and true God. And you see, that's the way it's got to be. You can't just add Jesus Christ as just another God in your pantheon of deities. Now, if you're, if you're Hindu, you can do that. There's plenty of room for multitudes of gods. But not when you deal with the God of the Bible. No. He is the Lord God and there is no other. You shall have no other gods before Him. It's, it's kind of like when you get married, you see. You can't just add your wife to an already existing harem. That doesn't work. Marriage must be exclusive, forsaking all others. So it must be in our Christian conversion. They had come to Christ said yes to the living and true God. They'd come to serve Him. The word is a strong word there. It's the same word that's used of, of uh, slaves. They put themselves under His absolute authority. For as uh, Bob Dylan put it so well, you've got to serve somebody. Even if it's your own lusts. And these Thessalonian believers had come to serve the living and true God. And of course, it's only right that they should. He's the living God. And apart from him, everything else is dead. It is lifeless. And he's the true God. He's genuine. He's not counterfeit like the things that once claimed their allegiance. They had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. But what was special about their conversion? What made it a Christian conversion was this third element. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. They came to God through his son, Jesus. Their salvation was in him. 
He he rescued them even in this life. Notice the present tense of the verb who rescues us. He rescues us from the wrath which is bound to come upon the whole world. You see, they understood that our problem as human beings is ultimately a moral one. As we have disobeyed God, we deserve his righteous wrath for he is a holy God. And they'd heard Paul's proclamation of this coming wrath that day when we will each stand before this holy God as our judge. And they realized there was nothing they could do to make themselves right before this God. There was no good deeds. There was no religious sacrifice that they could offer that would save them on that day of judgment. And they came to believe that Jesus Christ and he alone can rescue us from that wrath by his atoning death upon the cross. As he bears the wrath of God upon himself for us. The Thessalonians believed this message. And they were waiting in faith for this salvation which had already begun and which would be fulfilled and finished when this risen Jesus comes again. For He has been raised from the grave. He is now coming back as Lord of all to receive His people to Himself. You see, theirs was a decisive conversion. It was a clear testimony. And this is what it means to be a Christian, you see. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. They were waiting in hope and faith for the return of Jesus Christ who rescues us from the coming wrath. And so I ask you, is your testimony so clear and decisive as that? I mean, not that a testimony has to be racy or exciting. I mean, such that before you were a Christian, you used to be a drug pusher, gang member, you once adhered to the postmodern nihil deconstructionist philosophy of the reincarnated King Thor of the continent of Atlantis or something like that. No, maybe you just grew up in a Christian home. Maybe you attended a free church. Who knows? But do you understand what the gospel of Jesus Christ offers and what it requires? It demands a turning. From the worship of all the empty idols that clamor for our attention. The idols of wealth and beauty and position and power and social prestige. The idols of our own self-importance. So that you may give your life in service to the God who is alive and who is true. He is real. And all else is an illusion. Have you made that break with the past, that decisive break? Have you bowed before that new master? Have you received this new hope, this new hope found in Jesus Christ who rescues us? He rescues us. He rescues us from the wrath of God, which is even now poured out into the world. He rescues us from the captivity of our own sin and selfishness. He rescues us from the corruption of our own nature. He wants to remake us into the wonderful image of His Son, Jesus Christ. He wants to adopt us into His beloved family forever. What a message. And the Thessalonians, you see, they knew that the fundamental issues were black and white. You turn to idols you turn away from those idols or you don't. You, you, you turn to serve the living God or you don't. And they did. And I ask you, have you done that in your life? 
And I know that most of you have. But I'm sure there may be those here who haven't. Maybe, maybe you just haven't thought about it. You've just kind of been in a Christian environment and yeah, you kind of pick it up. But no, there needs to be a time of decision in your life. When you turn from idols and turn toward the living God, what do you need to turn from? What are you still holding on to? Maybe today, right now, God is convicting you. I say turn from those idols. Turn to the living and true God. Wait for His Son, Jesus Christ, to come and fully rescue us from that day of wrath. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. But I want you to think that, don't think that once you've done that, that you never need to think of it again. You see, there's a, a sense in which our unique conversion experience, which initially brought us to the Lord, that experience needs to be lived out every day. Our conversion is like what Martin Luther said of baptism. We need to affirm it day after day, putting it at the center of our lives. For you see, the Christian life is nothing but a daily conversion, once begun, constantly lived out as we turn daily in faith and in hope to God our Savior. And Paul was thankful for the Thessalonians, first of all, because of this decisive conversion. May we affirm our conversion today in the same way, turning from empty idols to serve the living and true God as we wait with expected hope for the coming of His Son, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The coming wrath. The wrath of God. It's coming upon all mankind. Upon all who stand in rebellion against God's rule in their lives. Upon all who have not yet received the forgiveness found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you see, these words create in us a sense of urgency. And it's a sense of urgency that these Christians had about their faith. And I think that points to a, a second praiseworthy characteristic of them, namely their missionary zeal. Look at verse 8. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Paul resorts to a little bit of hyperbole at that point. He's so excited about what he's seen. It's, it's as if there's been a, a trumpet blast coming from Thessalonica, sounding forth to all of Greece and beyond, Paul says. This church is not merely holding on to the gospel. It was also giving the gospel away. And no wonder Paul calls them model believers. You see, this city had a fine harbor. It was at the crossroads of a, of a number of, of means of transportation, including the great Via Ignatia, which is the Roman highway that led from Rome to the east. And it was easy to see how Thessalonica could be an important base for the spread of the gospel. Travelers would come. They would have contact with these Christians and then they would go to other parts of the world. It's kind of like what we see happening with our international friends ministry. God is bringing people from across the world to us. And we can share the gospel with them. And then they can go and be missionaries. Wonderful thing. There, there, there's no hint, though, that there was any sort of special missionary program or strategy. No suggestion that sharing the good news was a, a kind of a special vocation limited to a few. Those we call missionaries. No. From all we know of the early church, 
the chief means of the spread of the gospel was through the everyday life of the ordinary believers as their faith flowed out of their lives and made an impact on all that they came in contact with. Being a witness for Christ was simply a part of who they were. It was part of their identity as Christians. It was something they couldn't hide and they didn't want to. A couple of things mentioned here, particularly important in their missionary efforts. And first we see their willingness to suffer for the gospel. Verse 6, in spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message. See, this willingness to suffer testified to the value that they placed on this good news. The gospel was worth suffering for. And this fact didn't escape the notice of the watching world. For first the Jews and then the Romans tried to get rid of the church through persecution. They used insults, flogging, torture, even martyrdom to stamp out this movement. But as the early church father Tertullian said to the Roman authorities, the oftener we are mowed down by you, the more we grow in number. The blood of Christians is the seed of the church. You see, these Christians had something to live for because they had something they were willing to die for. And unlike the suicide bombers that we see in our day, their cause inspired love, not hate. I ask you, do people around you see how valuable the gospel is in your life? Is there any way that that becomes visible in the way you live? Now, we feel it's our constitutional right not to suffer for our faith, and perhaps it is, but there's no promise that it won't happen. And regardless of our rights, we must ask, are we willing to endure mistreatment for the sake of Christ? Or to be laughed at, to be snubbed, excluded from the in crowd, denied promotion, fired even? If we're not willing, how will they believe us? When we say that following Christ is what makes life worth living. And not only did they endure suffering, they did it with joy. You welcome the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, Paul says. You see, they discovered a source of joy that transcended their circumstances. It's a, it's a joy that comes in knowing the Lord God as your Father in heaven. That you are loved, you are valuable, you are significant. Not because of the things you do, the, the people you know, what you've accomplished. No, you are valuable because God loves you. You're made in His image. You're precious in His sight. You've been redeemed by the precious, precious blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's a source of joy. And in this suffering with joy, they'd become imitators of Paul. Paul, who wrote his great letter of joy, the epistle to the Philippians, he wrote that letter while he was sitting in jail. That's not natural. That's a joy given by the Holy Spirit. And in a world obsessed with finding personal fulfillment and happiness, shouldn't our joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ commend that gospel to others around us? So I ask, does the word of the Lord sound forth from us? Uh, where are the repercussions of our faith in the community around us? What sort of gospel witness comes from your life 
and from your lips. But you may say, well, you know, I'd like to do that, but really I need more training before I can share my faith in Christ. Or you may say, well, you know, really we need to strengthen our own church before we try to go out and tell others about Christ. Well, consider the Thessalonians. They were Christians for perhaps a little more than a month when their spiritual leader had to leave them. They didn't have the benefit of Sunday school or years of biblical instruction. They were baby Christians. But they knew the saving love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was enough. Like that man who had been born blind, all they could say was, once I was blind, but now I see. And you know, from Paul they had learned that you can't hold on to the gospel without giving it away. They could stand firm in the faith only by going forth to tell others about it. And I tell you, nothing could cause you to grow in your love for Christ than sharing your faith with other people. I encourage you, pray for opportunities. It may frighten you. Pray for opportunities to share the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ with your neighbors, with your co-workers, with your family members, whatever it may be. Join with us in this International Friends Ministry. We're sharing the gospel regularly with, with people from all over the world. Nothing will more vitalize your Christian life, your experience of the gospel, than sharing your faith with others. God's gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, had changed their lives. And this fact inspires Paul's third cause for thanksgiving for the Thessalonians. It was their Christian character. This is where he begins, in fact, in verses 2 and 3. We always thank God for all of you. Mentioning you in our prayers, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, love, hope. This grand Christian trilogy. We, we often think of those more in emotional terms, don't we? How we feel. But in Christian vocabulary, faith, hope, and love are words that can never be separated from what we do. You see, faith must be seen in actions. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, James writes. And Paul would have no argument with what James writes there. And the Thessalonians had faith that could be seen. It moved them to action. It wasn't just a part of their uh, uh, private life, their personal lives that had no impact in any public way. No, Christian faith is very personal, but it's never private. It's always a faith that issues in action. It is faith in Christ that makes us uh, say what is true. It is faith in Christ that makes us do what is right. And orthodoxy, right belief. Can't be separated from orthopraxy, right behavior. We are saved by faith alone, but real faith is never found alone. Faith works. And so it did in the lives of these Thessalonian believers. And then Paul commends their labor prompted by love. The word labor here reflects the cost that love is willing to pay for others. Going the extra mile, giving with no expectation of return. Now, as a pastor, I had the privilege of seeing this kind of costly love displayed quite often in the life of our church. 
as a labor of love. Um, Dawn L. Simmons has given up being a part of a Sunday school class. Instead, she takes Tyler Kate for a walk around the neighborhood every Sunday so that Tyler's parents, Devin and Becky, can be a part of a Sunday school class. It's a labor of love. As a labor of love, Seth Gunn has for several years now coordinated efforts to provide a, a team of people every six weeks or so to deliver used furniture to needy families in our area through ACCA. That's a labor of love. As a labor of love, uh, John Connell, uh, Rocky Klim, others have been spending time with John Otieno and his recuperation as he recovers at home from a stroke and heart problems. And recently, Joellen Bender has been taking Florence to some uh, Doctor's appointments. It's a labor prompted by love. It costs something. But you know, it's a funny thing about that cost. It seems that in the end, it always turns out to be an investment. And it reaps far more in rewards than you can ever imagine. And finally, Paul speaks of the endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hope. You know, this is this is Christian hope. It's not the hope of the world. It's not hope like I hope my dreams come true someday. No. This is the hope of a young woman engaged to be married, waiting for the day of her wedding, enduring the pain of separation, remaining faithful in her love, knowing that soon she will be forever joined with her beloved. Or this is the hope of the distance runner who rounds the track and hears the gun signaling the last lap. He gets a burst of energy knowing that the finish line will come. It's in sight and the reward for completing the race will make it all worthwhile. That's the hope of the believer. We have such a hope, a finish line worth striving for, a destiny worth waiting for. You ever feel like giving up? Don't do it. The bridegroom is coming to claim his bride. The Christian has a real hope, and it's real because we know that God can turn the blackness of Good Friday into the bright new dawn of Easter Sunday morning. He's done it, and he'll do it again. That's the solid foundation of our hope. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. Faith, hope, and love. The Christian trilogy, the fundamentals of the Christian life, the essential ingredients of Christian character modeled in the church of Thessalonica. May we follow that example. They were model believers. Decisive conversion, missionary zeal, Christian character. But I ask you at the end here, why does Paul thank God for all of this? He thanked God because he knew that all of this was the work of God in their lives. This was a result of God's loving grace, transforming them by his spirit into the image of Christ. Look at verse four of our passage, which in some way forms the very heart of this passage. Brothers, loved by God, we know that he has chosen you. And all that Paul says about these people provides evidence for that very fact. God had reached out his powerful hand of love. He had, he had chosen these men and women to be his very own. 
in their conversion, in their missionary zeal, in their developing Christian character. These things, you see, don't come naturally. They're not the result of a simple act of the human will. All of this is a demonstration of a supernatural act of sovereign grace in human lives. You know, there's a lot of interest in seeing the power of God these days. There's a fascination with miracles, with supernatural healing, speaking in tongues, all the rest. How many of us have not said at one time or another, oh God, just just let me see a miracle. Let me see a miracle. But you know, the power of God that most interested Paul, the power of God that most aroused his thanksgiving, was the power of the gospel to change the human heart. It's the power to change ordinary men and women into sons and daughters of God. It's the power of the gospel. And seeing the impact of the gospel in their lives, he knew that when he spoke to them about Christ, he wasn't just speaking empty words. That message, he says, came with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction, verse 5. And Paul knew that his words were really God's words. That's how the gospel works. It is God's message of power to change lives. We speak God acts. And the gospel has power to bring forth working faith, laboring love, enduring hope. And in a secular world too often filled with cynicism and distrust and despair, this indeed is a miracle of God. This is the power of God that we should be praying for. This is the power of God that should bring forth our thanksgiving as we see it changing human lives to the glory of God. When I do take time off from the church to visit family and friends, I'm often asked, how are things at the church? And what comes to mind when I hear that are the words of Paul. I always thank God for all of you. I can see God at work in the lives of many people here, young and old, men and women, boys and girls. I see faith and hope and love. And this is an evidence that you are loved by God, that God has chosen you in Christ. Now, this is not to say that we're necessarily a model church. God is not finished with us yet. We must continue to press forward, even as Paul writes, to encourage the Thessalonians. To press forward in their faith. But as that happens, we can be confident of this, that He who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, may our lives be a living testimony to the power of the Gospel. Lord, may we give thanks when we see your work in the lives of others. May it encourage us. Lord, may we see the kinds of things that these Thessalonian believers modeled for us. And may we pursue them ourselves. Give us an appreciation of your great love for us in Christ. May we overflow 
in the work of faith, the labor of love, the endurance inspired by hope. Lord, may the word of God, the gospel, sound forth from us in all sorts of ways. Lord, may the reality of that conversion show itself to be true as 